Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and we are joined today by Yael Goldstein-Love, author of the book The Possibilities, published July 25th, 2023, from Penguin Random House. The Possibilities is Yael's second novel. She's also the author of The Passion of Tasha Darsky, and if writing novels was not enough, also practices psychotherapy with a particular interest in the transition to parenthood and is working toward her doctorate in clinical psychology so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So The Possibilities is a really intense book, and I was hoping you could do us the favor of summarizing it a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, that'd be my pleasure. It is an intense book, and it it grew out of an intense period in my own life. Right after I started it not long after my son was born, I, I had a bad birth. My son almost died in labor, and it was over an hour before they could tell me if he was going to live. And so I just sort of lay there in the recovery room, just terrified, like not having any idea. Every time someone would come past me, I would ask, like, is there any chance he's going to be okay? And all that anyone would ever say is there's a chance. I like lived suspended for this hour between like a world in which she was like, was I in the midst of a tragedy or was I bringing home a baby? And he was fine in the end. After about a few days, they released him from the NICU, gave him bath. Like, we don't, you know, it, it was like he had a plug of mucus in his airway for no, just a freak sin. I just had a crazy postpartum experience as a result of this because I felt like I was existing in two realities simultaneously. There was the reality in which my son had died and there was the reality in which here I had a kid I had to take care of. And I just wasn't sure which reality I inhabited. And so we were like, and then, you know, the more I trusted it, the more I was, you know, trusting in this reality, like re- different realities would seem so real to me just in the way that like vigilant parenthood does. Do you know what I mean? It's like, here's the reality which he like actually did roll off the changing table instead of I caught him at the last second. Here's the one where like, he does slip under the water in his little bath, you know, with his slippery little body. Just like all these little things that feels just like, pulling off. And I started thinking about this in terms of a novel. And so this is the novel I wrote. It's sort of positing like, hey, what if, what if reality like really does change? Like the laws of physics really do change. The way it almost feels like they do when you have a baby. And all these parallel realities are not only happening simultaneously, but like they can interact. So in the book, there are these two realities. There's this reality where the child dies at birth, and then there's another reality where the child disappears from his crib at eight months old. And then he starts disappearing from everyone's memory. So he disappears from the memories of the police who respond to the kidnapping call, his mother's therapist, and then eventually his father as well. And then it turns into this hero quest where his mother, the protagonist, Hannah, has to figure out how to get him back and live with the anxiety of li- of loving someone as much as as a parent loves a child. There were so many parts of the book that felt immediately relatable, like even just from the first pages. You know, suddenly everything about your life is complicated when you have a small child. And the inability to even run a quick errand or complete a small task, you have to compartmentalize grief. You're alienated from yourself. There's just so much involved in being a caretaker. And anyone that's ever been a caretaker can empathize really with Hannah's position. 
it, but you didn't leave it at that. You know, you looked at the movement into all, you know, like the multiverse, the idea of the multiverse, the whole story feels like an allegory of anxiety and the way that we travel to other timelines and worlds and worst case scenarios when we're in a place of intense anxiety. That is, for me, it was really my whole postpartum experience and my my current experience, my daughter's just two years old, is still like moving through me. You could not have read it more perfectly. <laughs> that is the most gratifying thing you could have said to me. I mean, that is the exactly as you said, all the sci-fi elements. It is just, it is an allegory for the psychological experience of becoming a mother and the anxiety that that goes along with, you know, all the joy and all the good things. And the multiverse piece, the sci-fi piece, you know, is really just a way to capture them. Yeah, I got so much out of the, when the character is talking with her psychiatrist about what she calls the car swerve feeling. So that moment when you have like a near tragedy and you do live with the feeling that the tragedy occurred, like you feel it inside your body for long after that event is over and you kind of have to resolve within yourself that it didn't, you know, you didn't actually have that accident, even though it feels, you feel the real grief of it having happened. Yes, I, yeah, that's beautifully described. I've been thinking a lot lately just about why our culture is so interested in the multiverse, you know, like everything everywhere all at once and the whole Marvel universe and the new Spider-Man. And then, of course, I'm interested in this very personal way of like, well, I also did that. <laughs> why am I interested in this? And, and what I keep thinking about is that like, you know, there, there were like a spate of articles after everything, everywhere, all at once won the Oscar, saying like, we know why we're so into the multiverse. And and most of the articles were really focusing on kind of like the external world and like, look, we live in this like kind of terrifying timeline, right? Where it's like politically and and, and socially. And so we want to say like, oh, you know, what? how could it have been different or like, you know, better or worse? And I feel like that's, that's part of the story. But to me, it's actually more exactly what you were saying with the car swerve feeling, you know, which is what I call this in the book, which is we live with this. We, we really do day in and day out psychologically live with these other ways things could have gone inside our head, like both good and bad. You know, like there's like the terrifying thing that came a little too close to comfort for happening. Like that's living inside us. Even when things go really, really well, actually, I think sometimes, you know, it's like something goes wonder so well that there's like the terror of like, what if it hadn't happened that also lives inside us? And so I think like there's just this way in which like these very personal what ifs are constantly operating as these little parallel worlds inside of us. And and like really coloring our experience of reality in ways we're not even aware of. Yeah, I I, I personally really have found the idea of a, of the multiverse to be very soothing and reassuring in times where you just feel like you can't make the right decision, you know, and you want to have both things. There, you know, there's a book by Maylee Malloy called "Both Ways Is the Only Way I Want It," and I think of that as a phrase a, a lot of the time. So not even just, yeah, in tragedy, but like in in all of the good things as well. The idea that we're springing off all these different timelines from all these major decisions and life events, uh, I think is, is really, I think it's natural to wonder and to want to create those worlds. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. 
So you mentioned this, and it's mentioned a couple of times in the book, of the idea of motherhood as a hero's quest. Yeah. Something that I was really interested in when I started this book was just thinking about the way in which, like, you know, heroes is like, I'm this new, I'm a new mother, and I'm, as I think most mothers are, just sort of floored by what this task actually turns out to be. And it's just like, it's, it takes so much of you, your mind, your, your, soul, your physicality, and so much bravery, you know? And I kept thinking about how, why is it that in our culture, we think of like women's stories or sort of more female or domestic, domestic stories as lower stakes and sort of the high stakes stories, the like life and death stories are somehow supposed to be like more male. I was like, what could be, seriously, what could be more life and death dramatic than what a new mother or like, you know, any new parent is doing in trying to like foster this new life and figure out how to tame its rages and anxieties and, and turn it into a, 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 a person in the way that you have to come together to be a person in your own mind. And, and so I, I, the more I thought about this, the more I was thinking about like the hero's quest as sort of like the like prototypical male, like here's, here I am as an adventurer. Here I am doing the brave thing story. And I was thinking like, there's something about motherhood that is like this hero's quest. Only to me, it seems far braver and the stakes far higher than in most of those stories. I mean, granted, maybe not because it's depressed, like the whole world is going to end, but, but you know, the whole world's is going to end for you as a mother because it's your your world is this child that is your task and so I really wanted to write this as something that was both psychologically true to the experience my experience of being a new mother but that also really followed the tropes of the hero's quest so that it was like no 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 no, no. like this, this this hero's quest you know is 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 a deeply can be a deeply feminine and feminist trope as well yeah. Yeah, I love that. And it felt so, it felt so immediately accurate that I was sort of surprised that it wasn't something that I had thought of or heard of before, but I, I really hadn't. It does feel like one of those things that when you hear it, it's just so obvious that it seems like it should have been everywhere already. Yeah. I had the same feeling where I was like, wait, am I saying, do, is, am I saying something that I've actually heard a thousand times or is this new? And then, and I, I did some, I did some searching to make sure that this wasn't, you know, like, oh, I think this is just one of those things where I think it and it seems obvious as soon as I thought it. Yeah. Can I ask you now, this was a question and I don't know if this has any like real meaning or weight to it. There is, there are significance to, to me, but why did you choose to start the story? I mean, after the traumatic birth, we moved to, where Jack is 10 months old. Why did you choose 10 months? Oh my God, is it 10 months? Yes. In my mind, I <laughs> This is very important fact-checking you're giving me for my own book. Why did I choose 10 months? You know, I think, I, actually, I'm really curious to hear the significance to you, but maybe I'll, I, I should I answer first? <laughs> well, now you're making me question it. Was it actually eight months? I think it was 10 I trust you much more than me. You've read the book much more recently than I have. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go check after this, but I think you're almost certainly right that it's 10 months. And either, whether it's eight or 10, I think that the, the reason is, well, there are two reasons, actually. One is I wanted an age, there was a particular stage of babyhood I wanted, 
which is one where, you know, this isn't a newborn anymore. Like you're really starting to see the personality and they're like almost at that age where they're like, what you know, toddling away from you. And there's like a little more of that independence, but they're still very much dependent on you. You know, like to get you to get anywhere, you know, they're not really, you know, they're not full. Well, at least my son, my son was a little slow on the uptake with the walking. I'll be honest. You know, they're not fully walking. Maybe they're, you know, or if they are, they're not getting far, you know, and they're not, they're really not toddlers yet, but they're like about to emerge into toddlerhood. And there's something about that stage. that just felt like very right to me for this baby of the sense of like, here's like a fully a person in the world. And also like that last little bit of like, this person came from my body has not faded away. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's, I think that that's sort of like the craft reason why I did it. I think there's also this very personal reason why it was that age, which is that that was the age my son was when I first had the idea for the book. And so whenever I was, and there was, there was actual, there was an actual event that happened where I was, like we were sort of trying to get him to the pediatrician. And we had just moved to a new, a new city. I didn't know anyone in this city. My marriage was crumbling. It was, my partnership was crumbling in very unexpected ways. And just like everything felt scary and fraught. And then I, I forgot the car key. I forgot the car key up in my apartment. And here is my son, giant, in a stroller, in a, in a big snowsuit. And I was just like, how am I going to, how am I going to get this car key? And like, if I, if I try to take him out, there's no way we're going to make it to this pediatrician appointment. But if I leave him in here, you know, I don't think I can do that. And for one second, I turned around thinking like, maybe I will just leave him on the street. And I was like, run in really fast and get this car key and we'll still make it. And I picture in that split second, I picture like, what if I had turned around and he was gone? And in my mind, I imagined that he was back in, in Berkeley, California, where we had just left and where I was really, really homesick for. And then it was like, well, what would I do? What would I do that? Like, how would I get, how would I get to him? How would I save him? And I sort of knew that in that, like one little terrifying nightmare fantasy moment, that was the book that was going to get me through this. Like, this was the book I had to write to get me through and make sense of this experience. And so always in my mind, as I was picturing, you know, the rest of what happens in the story, I'm picturing that moment, that snapshot of my son, and he was either eight or two months old. I'm curious what it was for you. What 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 the meaning is for you of that particular age? Um, I have a photo of my daughter when she was ten months old, and she was standing. She's standing against the rocking chair in her nursery, and she's sort of holding herself up. She couldn't walk yet, but she could stand and hold herself up, and she could kind of cruise. And in that photo, which I didn't realize it when I took it, but when I looked at it later, I saw the toddler she was about to be. And it was like suddenly the baby of her was visibly shifting to the toddler of her. And it was wild. It was almost like catching catching her mid-transformation. And it was right at at 10 months. And I thought, oh, what a perfect time to start this part of this story where the baby is just about to lose the big part of their babiness, you know? And like, it is a transition point. Yeah, that is, I mean, yeah. So, so it really is exactly, yeah. It's like, and they're about to move from from baby to toddler oh that's i mean there's something about that description of of your that picture of your daughter that like almost like makes me want to cry i, I see it i see it a lot and i just feel like oh my gosh and like recently i got a photo of her 
where I can see the little girl in her. And I'm like, geez, it's just wild. It's just wild, you know, because it just feels like, you know, yesterday. Yes, right? Like it, yeah, that is, yeah. And I did like, I liked the the way that Hannah was interacting with the other supports in her life, the other adult supports in her life. The way that she like kept everybody kind of at arm's length, even her husband. And she was doing this in like conscious ways, like not sharing at her mommy group and in seemingly like unconscious defensive ways, like sneaking cigarettes and things like that. What was important to you about giving her that portrayal? That's such a good question. You know, I, I wanted her to be really alone in this experience. That that somehow felt important to me, you know, for a few reasons. One, because I think there is a way in which even with the best support network, there is something about mothering that can make you feel so profoundly alone. You're both, I mean, you're never alone in some ways, you know, because you have this child with you all the time. And there's something, it's like no one can quite come into the experience with you. It's such a, it's, you're having, it's such an intense, profoundly personal experience. I mean, it, and it always is sort of like touching on your own past and and your own past that's so old that you can't even quite put it into words because it often it predates the use of words. And so there's something so siloed about it, untouchable, unreachable about that experience. And I wanted to make that really palpable. So I kind of exaggerated it for her, you know, because I think like there's something a little subtle about what I'm talking about and like it being unreachable in these psychological ways. But, but for her, it's sort of really concretely, she's a little unreachable. And so I wanted to make her the kind of person who kind of defensively makes herself a little unreachable. That's part of it. I mean, I think another part of it, again, is sort of that that hero's quest aspect of like, that's always, it's like, you got to be, you're the lone, you're the lone person sort of going through that. And and I wanted to, I wanted that tension to be constantly present of like, okay, like there are these support, like, could I, am I able to sort of make use of them? It would be really good if I could, you know, like, especially with like the mother, the mother's group, I think is sort of the the most, the closest at some points to being like the support she could really use. And in fact, you know, they are crucial. I mean, in fact, her husband, her husband is crucial as well. I don't think she could, she could do what she ends up doing without either of those. And so it's, it's sort of this constant tension. She's like, I need to do this entirely on my own. And there is no way I can do what I need to do if I keep insisting that I have to do this entirely on my own and can't make myself vulnerable to the care of others and to the help of others. And 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 that was very much my experience of motherhood as well, is just like having to learn not to be pathologically independent. Because if you are pathologically independent in this in this endeavor, it is going to break you. Oh, a hundred percent. I had to learn that one myself. I feel like that was one of my very first like really hard things for me to like get past you know yeah well the possibilities it took me it took me so long to read even though it's not like a 500 page book (laughs) I honestly I had nightmares I had to keep checking on my daughter on on her monitor at night and I held her so close every morning that she was like mama no hug it just felt so close to the bone and I like even processed it with a friend of mine I couldn't really contain the feelings that it gave me. It's just like, you know, you like inhabit Hannah's life. And if you are a new parent, you really connect with that. Like 
maybe even reluctance or a normal discomfort you get around the absolutely insurmountable burden of parenthood. And the idea that, that that reluctance could result in the loss of your own child is like, it's devastating. It's, it's, an, it's an absolute masterwork in depiction of the postpartum experience. Like even spiraling into string theory and the multiverse theory, maybe even because of that, like I, it was brilliant. And I have to thank you for writing such a terrorizing and engrossing novel. Not a question. It's just an appreciation. A long-winded appreciation. I, I mean, thank you. And I feel like I, I, I feel like I want to say I'm so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm please so don't. It is a happy ending. I feel like yes. how I told like the baby is safe. The baby is safe. <laughs> I kept telling myself like just keep reading it, Mariquita. You will get to the end, and it's gonna be good. It'll be happy. I know it's gonna be fine. It's funny when I was trying to decide on author photos. There were like two photos I was trying to decide between, and I finally the thing I decided was like in one of them. I felt like if you were looking, if you were really scared while you were reading the book, and you looked at the author photo, you'd be like. This woman could kill the baby. <laughs> like, and the baby like, dies oh. so many times in the book. Like it just like, it just, just totally, just so we're really clear, it does end well. But there are a number of hurdles that you, like emotional hurdles that you have to get through that are important and incredible and feel like very authentic to the whole anxiety experience. You're so, right. Is there a place you'd like to direct folks to find you online? Instagram is where I'm most comfortable. Yael Goldstein Love writes on Instagram. Excellent. Well, I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and we've just been talking with Yael Goldstein Love, whose book, The Possibilities, for sure just devastated me in some of the best and certainly a few of the most frightening ways. <laughs> we will link, we'll link to it in show notes per usual so you can get lost in the science and the hope and the longing and the anxiety of it too. If you're looking for me online, you can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. Until next time, friends, be well. At Feminist Book Club, one of our favorite genres of nonfiction is learning the stories of the women behind famous or powerful men. So I am thrilled to share a brand new book with you. Parachute Women, Marianne Faithful, Marsha Hunt, Bianca Jagger, Anita Pallenberg, and the Women Behind the Rolling Stones by Elizabeth Winder. These four women worked tirelessly behind the scenes to help shape and curate the image of the Rolling Stones. This book is a beautiful, comprehensive group portrait of four women who were marginalized by the male-dominated rock world of the late 60s and early 70s, finally giving the women the credit they deserve for the impact on one of the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Even if you're not a Rolling Stones fan, You'll be blown away by the audacity of these women, and you'll love the rock and roll stories Elizabeth Winder shares in these pages. Perfect for readers of Girls Like Us, Parachute Women by Elizabeth Winder is out now from Hachette Books. Thank you for sponsoring today's podcast. My name is Ashley. My pronouns are she, her, and I am here to talk with Hannah Sloan about her book, Freedom Clause as well as open marriage, female desire, and using the word freedom in the title of the book. So Hannah, please introduce yourself to, your, to our audience. And what is your definition of feminism? Hi, everyone. My name is Hannah Sloan, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. Thank you so much, Ashley. My definition of feminism, I guess on a broader scale, and this would be tied to my 
longer term hope for society. It's that we realize true equality between the sexes, that we do away with traditional stereotypes. We do away with toxic masculinity. You know, we see things like true pay equity across genders and that women are encouraged to grow to their full potential. And for me personally, as a feminist, I want to empower myself and other women to live up to our true potential and support each other and call out whenever we see the patriarchy in action. Thank you. And what is the Freedom Clause about? Sure. The Freedom Clause is my debut novel, and it follows a young British couple who decide to open up their marriage and sleep with other people one night a year over a period of five years. I wanted to write a novel about a young woman who's been raised as a people pleaser and whose journey of self-assertion in the bedroom plays out in other areas of her life. So at its core is a book that gives women permission to live their lives fully on their own terms by ignoring societal pressures and focusing on what they need. And how have you seen open marriage portrayed in society? And how did you want to reflect that in the story? It's a really good question. I think, I'll be honest, I think I've mainly seen it in a negative light. I think that's probably, you know, we have a long history in Western culture of Christianity reigning supreme and dictating the way we live our lives. And as a result, open marriage has been seen as sexually risky and immoral. And I think there's this prevailing belief that monogamous, heteronormative relationships are the only uh, natural, culturally acceptable relationships. So in writing this book, I wanted to portray open marriages and open relationships without any judgment. I believe they can work when the relationship is built on foundations of trust and communication. And so in this book, The Freedom Clause, the couple that we follow set out some ground rules for the opening up of their marriage. You know, it's we do this once a year, we do this over a period of five years, we don't sleep with people in our immediate circle, like our friends, we don't repeatedly sleep with the same person each year. And they set these sort of clauses and ground rules to really set each other up to success. And what gets tricky is that one person in the marriage follows these rules fairly devoutly and the other doesn't. And you see that over the five-year period and it really does reinforce how important trust and respect are within a relationship. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I also feel like that can also make an open marriage, which is, which is supposed to be exploratory, also very rigid. This mm-hmm. like, you can't do this, this, this and that. Is like, okay, well, how are we able to explore? But you see it as something that really grounds how this relationship can form. And then you also, in the book, Dominic, who is the husband, sets, is, he brings up this idea. And often what we see in an open marriage is it could still be a patriarchal system of like a man approaches this idea. So how did you see that with yeah. this being a clause and, a man approaching this. Yeah. And I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of Dominic being the one to really want to do this and, and pushing for it and his, his wife somewhat reluctantly going along with it. And he is definitely the more sexual one at the beginning of the story. So you know, I think it's, I see what you mean about setting up all these rules can mean that it can come across as rigid. I also think if a couple is going through like a new period of experimentation to both feel safe and not worried, perhaps it's helpful to kind of set up those grand rules to say, this is what we 
you know, it's, it's boundaries, essentially. It's sort of, if you're going to sleep with other people, this is what's going to make me feel safe and respected and continue to be able to trust you. And I hope that's, that's how it's conveyed as well in the book. But it's going to help both of them explore their freedom rather than hold them back. So Steph, who works with the Steph Feminist Book Club and is a prolific journalist, she talked about Daphne or thought about Daphne and how she has written into her own desires, sexual and otherwise, especially as the person who did not bring up the idea of an open marriage. Is this book meant to have commentary on that? And what messages are you hoping to convey about female desire? That is a great question. Thank you, Steph. So I think, yeah, this is definitely a book about, it's about a couple exploring opening up their marriage, but it, it really does focus more on Daphne as a character and her growth over a five-year period. And it's, it's definitely exploring women and their sexual desires. And as you know, one of the early scenes in the book is Daphne trying out her first night sexual freedom in a hotel room with a man she meets at the bar. And it is incredibly bad. For Daphne, I mean, just the worst in every way. And for me, it was really important to give the female protagonist bad sex before she had a good encounter. That felt just really realistic to me. And in particular, I wanted to rewrite these romanticized, misleading versions of sex I had always seen growing up. You know, where as I was like a young girl into a teenager, I think the movies and books and the porn that I saw was that sex is this beautiful, effortless act. And I, I really think that's not true. You know, I, I didn't see any focus on female orgasms in films. And one film that really sticks out to me in particular is the original Top Gun movie. And you oh, see yeah. Tom Cruise and Kelly oh, McGillis having this sort of simultaneous orgasm as Take My Breath Away plays, you know, on top of that scene. And you see their like silhouettes against this like stunning dark blue backdrop. And that's no effort on Tom Cruise's part to make the woman orgasm, by the way. But if you, if you see that as a young girl, as I did, you know, I remember thinking there was something wrong with me for not being able to orgasm from penetrative sex. And I think the reality is for a lot of women, it requires literal stimulation. And for so many reasons, and we can blame Hollywood or porn, men and women haven't been trained to think that way. And so it's in writing that first sex scene for Daphne, I, I just wanted to write about the kind of sex that I had in my early 20s. And it was, I was left feeling vulnerable and exposed and, and lonely. And sometimes like there was something wrong with me. And I really wanted to start there, which is where I began with my sexual journey to get to a much more empowered place. So, so that is definitely, you know, step asking about female desire. That is absolutely what I was, what I was trying to do. I, I sort of look back and I'm almost embarrassed the look of assertion I took over my own rights orgasm when I was younger. But it's also a book about a lot more than sexual desire. I think Daphne by, you know, she is in this in this relationship and she's the nurturer. You know, she cooks and she takes care of people and Dominic, her partner, is the kind of classically, you know, loud, funny one who needs more attention in social situations. And we've all seen those couples. And by exploring her own sexuality, you know, what's wonderful for Daphne is she becomes emboldened to examine her career, her relationship with her family, her marriage, her kind of passion on the side of cooking. And she starts to slowly but surely 
adjust like the pie chart of her life so that she's spending much more time prioritizing the things that are important to her. And that is one of the kind of, I'd say, pillars that I, I kind of believe for me and for other women is that we need to do that. We need to look at the pie chart of our lives. Where are we spending time? Where do we actually want to be spending time? Because I think, unfortunately, from a very young age, women are encouraged to put their needs last. And, you know, as, as little girls, we're encouraged to be quiet and pretty and neat and tidy and clean up the table after dinner and say please and thank you. Whereas boys are allowed to be boys and come running in from the garden with like mud on their legs. And unfortunately, this continues into adulthood, I think, where women are more, who are more assertive, tend to be labeled in negative ways. You know, they are difficult, hysterical, high maintenance. She's a bitch. And, you know, it's, it's just, it's unfair. It's really unfair. And I think that's why I was writing this novel. Yes. De- Daphne definitely takes agency in a, in a myriad of ways. One thing that I really thought about reading this book was I could have read just about the recipes and how each recipe res- represented a plate, a time and place in her life, whether it was the bad sex or her relationship with Dominic or her childhood and how that creativity really was sparked from trauma and pain and from discovering herself. So if you need a book idea, I would love to read that book. But you you hit on so many points, particularly with desire and agency and how we've seen it and how you've seen it and just how that manifests into different ways and how you took it upon yourself to say, you know what, the ways that we've seen it, whether in Hollywood or in porn or in different ways, let's let's really make it more realistic and have these experiences and how you learn from them. Exactly. I'm so glad you like the recipe element too. Yes. <laughs> and I really love the title of the book. I think that it makes it open, pun intended, mm-hmm. and more than just, you know, the marriage and how Daphne and Dominic explore sexuality, but also how they exploit themselves as people and what they want from their lives and from their relationship. Why did you choose the word freedom in the title? And how did that ideal carry in the story? That is a great question. Thank you. Yeah, freedom is a really important word to me. I think especially during a time in this country when many of our freedoms are under attack. I think in particular, women are penalized around this idea of freedom or independence or, you know, even simply something like being single. You know, I think women are sent this message that from a young age, in order to be kind of quote unquote sorted, we need to be married or in a relationship that is headed in this direction. And the problem with sending women that message is a lot of them will say in bad relationships because they have been taught to see being single or independent in a negative way. But, you know, going back to kind of the title of the freedom clause, it's a decision between the two main characters to open up their marriage sexually. Ultimately, for Daphne, she's breaking free in so many ways. She's breaking free from her past insecurities, her family, from being a chronic people pleaser, from societal pressures. And she's beginning to assert what she wants in her marriage, in her career, in her side hustle, our passion projects. So I think while this is a book about a young couple testing to freedom, most of all, I, I wanted to write about a young woman on a journey of self-assertion and how it plays out in every area of her life, not just sexually. I think when readers read the description, it's going to be like, oh, open marriage, da, 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 da. But you read it to get some, to gain something more as you've talked about. 
And something that I've thought about more over the past year is just what exactly desire is. I think it's been defined as just sex and pleasure, but it's also eating an ice cream cone or that good glass of water after being outside. Like, what are the things that fulfill you and please you in other ways? And that's what that book really, this is what this book really gets into is just what is desire and how do we nourish ourselves besides the physicality of sex and being with another person or other people. Yeah, I think that's such a good point about desire. And it is often just held by such narrow definitions, people immediately leap the sex, but you're right that it can be your favorite food, a walk in the park. And weren't we all kind of scratching our heads during the pandemic when we were kind of stuck in our apartments and trying to find things we enjoyed despite not having many ways to kind of go about our traditional kind of seeing friends and socializing. So yeah, desire is a very important word and so much broader than it's given credit for. What organization is important to you that you would like to amplify to our audience? I live in Brooklyn. I am very lucky to have a lot of independent bookstores. I have Books and Magic within walking distance. I'm going to be my books coming out at the end of July, and I'm going to be doing a launch reading event at Book Club Bar in East Village. It's a bar that's also a bookstore and a coffee shop, what's not to love. But all that to say, I am passionate about supporting independent local bookstores and I would ask everyone tuning in to, to do the same with their with their local bookstores. They're just such an incredible boost to our community. They are competing against Amazon every day. So buy books from your local bookstore, go to their author events. We do not want them to go away. And we don't want our streets to only be filled with like CVS and Walgreens and Starbucks, which is the direction it's going in. Emma Sloan, thank you for joining us to talk about the Freedom Clans. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature.